Welcome to the Business of Luxury podcast, where we feature exclusive conversations with entrepreneurs, executives, and influencers on the leading edge of luxury. On today's episode, Human connects with Jeffrey Best, president and founder of LA-based Best Events. For over 20 years, he's curated and produced numerous events, including social and private gatherings, awards, after parties, new product launches, and sponsorship activations. Jeffrey most recently opened The Hideaway on Rodeo Drive and a vegan sushi bar called A Plant Bar, which just opened on Melrose. Now in this episode, you'll hear Jeffrey share how he got started in the event planning business, behind the scenes stories from his biggest events, and what motivated him to open The Hideaway in Beverly Hills. All right, let's join Human for his conversation with Jeffrey Best. Jeffrey, welcome to the show. It's so wonderful to have you with us today. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very excited. Wonderful. So, Jeffrey, walk us through a bit of your background. You have a very interesting background, and we're all very interested to know how did you get in the event planning business? How did it all begin for you? Well, it all began for me. I was born in Hollywood at uh, the old Cedars of Lebanon Hospital. My family was in the men's clothing business. Uh, they had a store at Sunset and Vine for about 40 years. Um, and that business, uh, they were in the business of making custom men's suits. And that business changed uh, as styles changed. And my parents got divorced and I grew up um, living in an apartment uh, over off of uh, La Cienega. And my first job was selling maps to movie stars' homes. Um, and for those of us old enough to remember, there used to be people on the side of the street all throughout Hollywood and Bel Air where they'd have a little sign and somebody would sell you a map. And so 12 years old in 1973, I got a job doing that. What was interesting about the job was the guy who owned the maps would sell you the maps, give you a corner and a sign, and so you'd buy the maps for 2 or $3, and then you'd sell them to people from outside of L.A. for whatever you could get. So that's how you made your money. <laughs> uh, my second or third week in there, I was at Orange and Hollywood Boulevard, and I got mugged. Ooh. And it was really scary. And I was 12 years old. And um, not only did they take what little money I had, it was probably $10 or $15 at the time, uh, but they took all the maps that I had. Mm. So the end of the day comes, the guy who owned the map company comes, picks me up, and I tell him what happened, and I'd have called my mom from the payphone, and I'd called the police, and they came over to talk to me. And he said, well, I'm sorry about that, but you still owe me for the maps. And so my mom, in her wisdom, said, okay, well, you're going to need to go back and make enough money selling maps to pay off the map guy, which took me another two or three weeks but by the time I was done, I said, I'm not going to do this ever again. And I got a job at a, as a dishwasher at a market and deli on Robertson Boulevard that's no longer there called the Robertson Market and Deli. Mm. And I would, you know, sweep up and I would clean things. And sooner or later, they let me become um, more of a dishwasher. Maybe I got to do some prep. And then after doing prep for a while, I got to be a sandwich guy. And then from there, I got jobs at other restaurants. Uh, the saloon used to be in Beverly Hills, the Robinson's department store tea room. And I prog progressed working in kitchens for many years up until the point where I had left a couple places and then gone back to Robinson's and I was working as a cook and I almost cut my finger off. And 
I remember back in those days in the 70s, if you couldn't work because you cut yourself, you didn't get paid. And mm-hmm. I remember talking to a busboy, and the busboy told me he'd made $15 in tips that day. And that just kind of blew my mind because I was making a dollar fifty or a dollar sixty an hour. I'm like, of course. What am I doing? Am I so I got a job as a busboy, and then I got a job as a back waiter, then a front waiter, uh, then a captain, then a maitre d'. And in 1985, I became the maitre d' at the grill on the alley in Beverly Hills, which is a couple blocks south of where the hideaway is. That's and at right. the time where the hideaway is now, there was an Italian restaurant. I don't know if you remember it, but it was really good, and they had beautiful umbrellas out, and they had a great chicken dish, and they had great pasta. And I remember looking at that location thinking, wow, it's really kind of an oasis, right, mm. around from there. So I continued working um, in restaurants, and I got hired by Warner Brothers to open up their commissary for them. And while I was there, I started working on events because the commissary was only open for lunch. And you know, I had nothing to do in the afternoon. So in the afternoons and evenings, I started working on events and I did my first movie premiere for a big event company. And the way the event company worked at that time is they would um, bid out an event and give you a flat price. And then they would hire all the sub vendors and they would make the difference between what they spent and what they charged. And Mm. I said, this this is a great business, but I don't think that's the way you should do it. I think you should be like a contractor. And shortly thereafter that, I left uh, Warner Brothers and I went to help to reopen the Chateau Marmont Hotel. Of course, of course, the and, famous Chateau Marmont Hotel. Yeah, so for, for Andre Belaz, and besides opening up the kitchen for him, I started planning all the events. And while um, today it certainly has a different name or a different um recognition when i'm about to say this name but at the time there was these two brothers and they were starting a film studio called miramax Mm. and they were looking for locations to do parties and somebody to do them they didn't have any money so i started doing all the events for them and so from all quentin tarantino's things to the english patient to goodwill hunting to all those films that they began their careers with i was the one producing all the parties for it and I took my knowledge from the restaurants and obviously my knowledge of growing up on the streets of Hollywood and getting mugged to kind of put the two of them together to have kind of a punk rock ethos about how you can do events in a unique way. And as I continued on in my career, I opened restaurants and bars and nightclubs, et cetera. And that's what led me to where I am today. What, what an incredible process you went through and everything that you had to do to get to where you got eventually. You know, when they say everything has to be earned from the bottom ground or starting in the mailroom, clearly that's exactly what you did, which allowed you to be where you are today. I I agree with you. And what was interesting is a lot of the guys and gals who were working in the mailroom at whether it was William Morris or CAA or a studio, we all started at the same time. And they were calling me to make reservations for their boss. And we would become friends over the phone. Now they're the ones who are running all the studios, running all the agencies. And they're people I've known for 35 years from taking care of them when they were starting out. So it, it's it's all worked together. What a pro- Absolutely. What a process. So, yeah. having been, so having been involved in so many events, you know, that you've been doing for such a long time, what would you say, what events have you planned 
that you're like really proud of? What made them so special and dear to you, would you say? Well, there's a lot I've learned from everything I've done. And, and like everyone, you learn from your failures sometimes more than your success. But um, there's two events I'm going to talk about that I think um, really made me proud. The first event was the Golden Globes in 1997, I think, mm-hmm. at the Hilton. It was the first time that um, Miramax decided to do an event, and it was the height of all their stardom from you know, Gwyneth and, and Brad Pitt and everyone coming to it. And they gave me kind of carte blanche to come up with an idea. And so I took one of the rooms at the Hilton, which incidentally is where my mother and father were married at in 1957. So wow. going back to work there was really interesting because it has such a legacy for me in my old life. But anyway, 97, um, And I decided to do a theme that I had seen in a bar when I was traveling in San Francisco where they had a place called the Red Room. So I did everything in the entire space in red, red carpeting, red furniture, red roses, red walls, red drapery. All the servers were dressed in red. It was a room that held maybe 150 people and we crammed 300 people in there. Mm, mm. And it was one of those events where the energy the energy in the room was so dynamic that this party kept getting busier and busier and busier as all the other parties were getting quieter and quieter and quieter. <laughs> and it was one of those things where everyone was equal who was in the room because we all knew that this was the place to be. So that's that's kind of the first one where I really had an, an aha moment. The same year, I did a party for Michael Chow. He was celebrating an anniversary at Mr. Chow, mm-hmm. and he asked me to take the three contiguous parking lots behind Mr. Chow and recreate the interior of Mr. Chow for a pop-up that was going to be open for one night. We started out with a cocktail reception at the then-new Gagosian Gallery and then walked down the street. And yes, I closed off the street, and I had Chinese lanterns and everything like that. But during the day, when Michael came to look at the event site, he said, you did an amazing job. And I said, great, how many people are coming? And he said, about 600. I said, Michael, Michael, we've only built the venue for 300 people. And he said, you know, the one thing I want to tell you is people in LA, sometimes they need to be uncomfortable. Mm, Great point. And it was really interesting because booths or tables that were supposed to have four people had eight people. So you were crammed in next to everyone. And people were sitting on the edges of sofas and they were perching next to tables and they had an amazing time. And it really told me that it's not about the wealth of space or even the wealth of money or even the wealth of champagne. There's something about when people gather together and break bread or have cocktails or visit with their family, whatever it is, that if you can get all the combination of things together in a unique way, that everything works. It's amazing. So I'm going to say one more event. I have a client who I met when I was at a restaurant called The Olive, which I don't know if you remember The Olive. Do you remember it? I, I, I don't remember The Olive, no. So it is. it was a restaurant at the Farmer's Daughter Motel on Fairfax, 119 South Fairfax. Um, it had eight booths, 10 tables, and 10 bar seats. And I was there for about three years. At every store, it was like Bono and Madonna and Tom Waits and the head of CAA, and 
20 or 30 other actors and musicians, all who were coming up, all who ended up becoming superstars. So it was just this really amazing experience. And I met a young man there named Guy O'Siri. And Guy at the time was working for Madonna. So over all these years, we've continued our relationship. I've done work for him. And he called me up one day after I've worked for him and Madonna and all of his, and Bono and everyone else. And he said, I'm getting married and I'm getting married in Rio de Janeiro at the Corcovado, which is, I don't know if you've seen the crucifix that is on the top of that mountain overlooking all the city. Yeah, I know. I haven't been there, but I know about it. I very well. So he said, We're, I'm getting married there. You need to figure it because it's actually a church. It's run and owned by the Catholic Church of Rio. Um, it's open to the public. And I need you to find a way to privatize it for one day so that we can get married there. Oh, and by the way, yes, my wife is Brazilian and she's going to have a Catholic ceremony. I'm also going to have a Jewish ceremony there for me. And I need a rabbi. <laughs> oh my you know i to to, to uh, interject here i went to school with guy a terrific individual and that's exactly his character and personality yeah. to the point just you know he wouldn't do it any other way but right. i just so sorry to interrupt you. i just wanted to share that no no you. and so you know guy and that is his character and he that's wanted this event to be a reflection of him so um you know besides it was you know all the stars we've talked about and Elon Musk and Ashton Kutcher and Anthony from the Chili Peppers holding up the chuppah and everything else and all the security concerns and everything like that. Um, this unbelievable cloud structure came in above the ceremony right before we can begin. And it shielded it from all the photographers and helicopters and people flying in drones. And we all felt like we were floating on the top of a mountain. Wow. Wow. And, and time stood still as Michelle was walking down the aisle to an amazing Beatles song. And we all just stood there and you know how weddings are. Um, we've all been to a lot of weddings. We've all been in a lot of weddings. Of this course. was one of those weddings again. And it reminded me back to the first event I talked to you about in 97, right? So 24, 25 years later, having this wedding on the top of a mountain in a foreign country amongst the clouds, it just blew all of us away. What a, what a story. If you ever needed a confirmation that the universe wants you to be doing exactly what you're doing, I think you've got that message loud and clear because the experiences that you have and the, what you're sharing with us is quite unique and fascinating. Maybe one can even say divine intervention. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, I hope there's some type of intervention in everything we do. And I really look at every event and every restaurant I'm a part of that um, when we opened up the hideaway, one of the questions I asked all the service and bar staff about a week and a half before we opened was when I had a chance to meet with them all. If you, if you knew you were serving lunch or dinner to this group of four and that one of these people it was going to be the last meal they had on earth mm. what kind of experience would you want them to have wow. and the truth of it is for all of us we don't know what that last experience is going to be and so whether it's a restaurant or a huge big wedding or an event i'm doing i always try and keep in my mind that the amount of times that these people are all going to be together in this room is maybe one or two times ever, right? Ever. 
Absolutely. So Absolutely. I want to give my, my managers and my employees the freedom to remember that, you know, this, everything we have is a blessing. Everything we're getting is, you know, we have plenty here, right? We're not starving here. I'm not, my job isn't to make small rocks out of big rocks on a daily basis out of the street gang. You know, I'm planning parties and opening restaurants for people to come in and enjoy themselves. And, and that's what I want to hopefully take some wisdom from every single time it happens. You know, I was going to ask you, that's beautifully shared and, and experienced from what you're telling me. I was going to ask you, you know, when it comes to food and events, what, you know, what, what, what approach, you know, how do you create, let's say, a unique experience and memorable one? And you just answered that. And the answer is that you have so much heart in what you do. Yes, the food is amazing. The ambiance is amazing, right? The service is great. But how do you get to someone's heart? How do you get to that energy level that's so intangible? And you just answer that question. And I think that's what really makes what you do a very unique and different because you're able to get people just like the Mr. Chow example you gave, right? Yeah. Not about everything was great, but it's the connectivity and energy when people come together and how they interact. It's something that cannot be really explained through words. It has to be felt. And that's exactly what you're doing for your clientele, which is not easy to do at all. Well, I agree with you. And I'm also going to say something else. It can't, it can't be bought. You know, I've had people come to me and give me $2 million budget for their wedding, where we had monogrammed linens and custom china, and, and it was the most boring event you ever went to, right? So sure. we all have to just keep that in mind in everything we do and whatever experience we have. Um, I think that um, I hope more than anything, I empower the people who work for me, who are the ones who are really doing the work on a daily basis to have that spirit in them. Um, you know, Benny from the Hilton, right? Yeah, of course. So he calls me up about, it's probably in September on a Sunday morning, uh, Sunday afternoon. And I don't get calls from him that often, but you know, when he calls, you pick up the phone. Sure. And I said, Hey Benny, how's it going? He says, I want to tell you something. He said, I just came walking into your restaurant, the hideaway. Nobody knew who I was. I didn't have a reservation. And every step from the first person to talk to me to the finish of my meal, I was treated with such courtesy and respect mm. without him even knowing who I am. And at the end of the meal, when I asked if this was your restaurant, they said, oh, are you a friend of his? Wow. And he said, yes, I'm a friend of his. Wow. Wow. And so, you know, it's one thing that when I call up, when somebody's coming in, you know, when Dara's coming in or something like that, and I, oh, you better take care of him. It's another thing entirely when you don't call That's and you right. don't say, and they don't know who you are about how you're going to get treated. And the hope of course, is that you hire the right people, not a resume. So I'll try and look at the person, not what's written on a piece of paper. And then you let them do what they're going to do. And it doesn't mean they're going to do what you're going to do. It means that they're going to be the fullest extension of who they are. And from that, hopefully the freedom you've given them comes through in what they do. Absolutely. What a true testament to really connecting to one's disposition and personality and character and how at the highest level 
they can connect to people on an EQ level. And that's what it's all about. Listen, I mean, sometimes you have a connection with a gardener or somebody you meet on the street or somebody you run into on an airplane or, and you may never even talk to them again, but you have this real moment, right? That's right. And they'll never forget it. They'll never forget it. I know. And and what's amazing to me is um, there was a big story in the journal a couple months ago about what people talked about at the end of their lives that they were missing most. And they were expecting it to be wealth and privilege and luxury. Mm. And it was connection and friendship and love. Wow. Because ultimately you have a happier life. If you have friends and community around you to the last day, your last breath, than if you have everything and you've got no one. Absolutely. Correct. Absolutely correct. And you know, people don't forget events, food, company, uh, and it's not always easy. It really isn't. What would you say based on that? What are the biggest challenges you face when you're planning an event, when you have to deal with all these different personalities and characters and people in Hollywood or the business world, or, you know, you have a unique audience there. What, what are the challenges that you face when putting an event together? Well, I'll tell you, we were working on an event. I'm not going to say who it was for. And it's an event that's been held for many years. And they asked me to come in and give some new life to it. And 30 or 45 days before the event, there were some things we were still deciding on. And they said, look, when we get four weeks out, it's pencils down. There's no more changes after that. Mm. And so the first challenge I have is, look, I'm going to fight hard for the experience at a, my restaurant or at my lounge or, or when I'm doing an event until you've left. I'm going to continue to be passionate and care about everything that's happening. And the biggest challenge I have is, and I'll use this so everybody can understand it. Have you ever been to a restaurant that's closing at the end of the night? And the guy's putting chairs up and they're turning lights up and they're, the music's going down. They want to get rid of you at that point, you know? But yeah. look, we don't do that at my restaurants. We're open till 11 o'clock. It means till 11 o'clock, there's not a damn thing that happens, okay? You're, mm. you're, you're on point then as you are at the beginning. And so working events, that's what I want to have. And so the challenge I have sometimes in hotels, um, sometimes in Clients who've been doing things over and 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 over again is somehow the art that we're looking to have is being overwhelmed by the commerce. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And I think the biggest challenge is because that's not who you are and that is not your model. It creates this very difficult obstacle for you because it's not how you go about servicing your clients. It's the exact opposite. It is. I mean, to me, it's that thing of where um, it's two days. I, I was doing this party once for Sean Combs, okay, um, at Ron Burkle's house. And we had a plan, and I gave it to him. And it's now the night before, and he comes to look at the party, and everything is exactly as he had seen it on the mm-hmm. plan. Except he'd been holding the plan this way, 
And I've been holding the plan this way. <laughs> Talk about two complete opposite views, right? And he said, yeah, the DJ's on that side, not this side. The seating's over here, not over there. And I'm looking at him and I'm looking at Ron. And, um, and he goes, no, nah, man, I guess it's okay. I said, it's not okay. We're going to work all night and we're going to change it. And we worked all friggin' night wow. to turn the entire event 180 degrees. Wow. And the truth of it is the only person who really knew the difference was Ron and Sean. Of course. Because everyone else never knew what it was going to be, right? That's right. But it was important that their passion, their idea, what they saw in their head, that mm -hmm. I was recreating it that way. Because ultimately, that's what my job is, right? I My job is to add to this conversation, add to the art, be part of this whole idea of it. But if they have a picture of which where the DJ is going to be, then that's the picture I need to reproduce. That's right. That's exactly correct. So, so tell me something very interesting. Having been in the event planning industry for so long and being so good at it, what motivated you to actually open the hideaway in Beverly Hills? So when I was growing up, um, I didn't have a lot of money, but I, you know, I had mobility. I had a car when I was 16. And back then you could leave LA and you could be in Rosarita beach, Mexico <laughs> in about two and a half hours, believe it or not. And so me and a bunch of buddies at the time, gas was cheap. You'd get in this, I had an old station wagon that my mom painted at Earl Scheib <laughs> and I would drive down. We'd go to the border. We'd go to Rosarita beach. Um, and there's a little fishing village there called Puerto Nuevo. And when you'd go in, there'd be five or six of us. And they would say to you, um, six people, lobster, tequila, beer, all the food you can eat, $20 a person. And you'd say, nah, I'll, I'll give you 12. And then you'd end up at $15 or whatever it was. Right, right. But the experience of it was, it was literally, it was a family operation. I'm making it up. The father was at the grill cooking all this fresh fish and steak and chicken and everything else. And they were making fresh tortillas. And you take this warm, freshly cooked protein and put it on a warm tortilla that had just been made and you'd eat it. And it was the best thing I ever ate. Mm. Mm. So cut to the chase. It's now years later. I decide to open a Mexican restaurant in downtown LA in the arts district. And find a building. It needs entitlements. It needs a change of use. And you know what I mean. It's all this stuff that has to get, be approved. And it takes us about a year and a half to get it all approved while the landlord is waiting to see if we can get it all done. And we were at a point where we had about 30 days left on our free look, if you know what I mean, with all the entitlements. And the landlord's like, okay, look, are you going to go forward with this or not? And I remember, remembered that space that had that Italian restaurant at it from when I was working at the grill 30 years previous. I still passed yeah, yeah. And I said, you know what? I don't, I don't think there's anything there. Maybe we should take a run at that. If we're going to do a Mexican restaurant, I'd much rather open it up there than open the arts district. And everybody at the time said, I mean, even restaurateurs, or I'm not going to use their name, said to me, oh, going to Beverly Hills, are you crazy? That's where mm -hmm. restaurants go to die. I said, yeah, I think you're wrong. I think restaurants are going to thrive in Beverly Hills better than any other community. There's parking. I mean, there, there's a whole reason why. And so we started to negotiate the deal with you, you know, with everyone. And I walked away from the other deal because I believed in the location. 
I believed in the idea of something. At the time, the name of the restaurant was Hernando's Hideaway. Mm, mm, and, and you changed and, it. And I called it Hernando's Hideaway because of Hernando Courtright, mm. who, who, as you re- may know the story, was a banker for B of A, was sent to rescue the Beverly Hills Hotel as the banker, left the banking business, became the general manager of the Beverly Hills Hotel, then left the Beverly Hills Hotel to build and open the Beverly Wilshire Hotel. What and is- at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel, he had a restaurant called Hernando's. Wow. And it was a very famous song in the 50s called um, Hernando's Hideaway. And so I wanted to call it Hernando's Hideaway because I, it was an homage to the history that I grew up around when I was a kid. Uh, my partners kept saying, I don't know if this Hernando's thing is going to work. But the idea of the hideaway <laughs> works. You took that off and made it the hideaway. Yeah. And, and, what, and what would you say makes the hideaway so unique and different compared to other restaurants? What is the... Uh, you know, distinction in your opinion that that creates that difference? I think it's the sense of discovery because you you don't, it's not sitting there in a visible place out on the street that you can drive by and you have to find it. Mm, mm. And it's kind of that thing of where somebody says, before there was Google and before you had a smartphone, and you were somewhere, and they say, and you, they say, well, there's this great restaurant. You got to go down here. You make a left. You go down this thing. You go over this other place, and you find it. I think for all of us, when you discover something with your own eyes and your own heart, yes. it's much more. It's much more resonant than somebody telling you. That's right. That's exactly correct. You know, I have to tell you. There's no doubt in my mind the reason for your success is that you go above and beyond the norm. You truly stick to what you believe and what you know in your heart, and you take that action. And it's not that you're trying to prove others wrong, but you stick to what you believe. And whatever that result is, you're okay with it. And that is so evident in the success and what you've created for yourself. I just want to share that with you. Thank you very much. And it doesn't mean I don't make mistakes. I'm the first person when I do something and it doesn't work to say, well, that didn't work. Let's do something else. So, but there's something amazing about life that you call it actualization or anything else or self-actualization. When I work on an event and I sit with a client and I sketch on a cocktail napkin, here's what we're going to do. And then 90 days later, I actually get to do it. The intrinsic reward I get from that type of completion, if you know what I mean. Yes. It's it's so amazing that it's hard not to have passion for it because it's given you so much. Just seeing it done. Opening the hideaway was was a dream come true for me. You know, having to wait through COVID and cost overruns and all that. But the whole idea of actually going back to Beverly Hills you know, so I used to live up on Larrabee in West Hollywood, and I, at the time I didn't have a car. I would walk mm-hmm. down to Santa Monica Boulevard, and I'd take the bus into Beverly Hills when I worked at the grill. And so I'd walk down Santa Monica Boulevard to get to the grill, and I'd walk down Rodeo Drive. And so, you know, I always felt, you know, oh, here I am. I'm, I'm, I'm walking off the bus, but that's okay. And I'd walk by, and I'd see that restaurant. And I didn't say, oh, one day I'm going to do that, but I kept looking at it. And the fact that this many years later, Almost 40 years later, here I am 
owning a restaurant and that place that I walked by. Unbelievable. It's a Hollywood story, funny enough. It really is. Okay. The only challenge for me is that um, it takes a lot of time to open a restaurant. It takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of luck. Um, I don't know how many more I'll be able to get done before it's time for me to hand the reins over to the younger crew is going to do something different, but I hope I have a few more in me. I, I, I have no doubt that you do. And before I let you go, one of the things that I'm sure our listeners would want to know and, and hear from you is with your great experience that you have and had and the success that you've created, what advice would you give to someone who's just starting out and, and wanting to launch their own business? What would that be? If you had to share one thing, what would that be? What would that message be? Believe in yourself. And, and if you love what you're doing, the money will follow. The intrinsic reward you get from succeeding is something you really like. And don't worry about the rest of it. Wow, that, that is truly beautiful. Talk about ultimate level of certainty and being okay with the result. That's exactly what you just shared with us. And, and truthfully, you know, um, we all meet different people all over the place. And, and um, I meet people my age or even younger than me who you look at them and there's no life in their face anymore. Mm. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And there's no wonder. Um, and, there, and it's interesting. There's a client of mine named Brian Grazer. He's a movie producer, and I did his wedding. And he wrote a book about really, I think the title is Curiosity. Be curious, you know? Mm -hmm. Take the road that you didn't think you were going to take. Do the things that everyone tells you is never going to work, but you believe in. Because ultimately, satisfying your own curiosity is its own reward. Beautifully said. And to never give up like you didn't. And you're living, you're living proof of that. And I have no doubt you're such an inspiration to so many people, not only in the restaurant world, but in any endeavor that they're pursuing, because everything you're talking about is all the intangibles that one needs to truly succeed at the highest level. Well, thank you very much for that. Um, and I appreciate the time today. Um, and I hope that we, you and I, and can go and sit down and break bread together. I would because love that, that. That truly would be the culmination of this discussion, what we've been talking about and what I believe in. We will do that. And I can't thank you enough for joining our show today and, and being so gracious and such a joy to speak to and sharing your story with our listeners. And thank you for that. Thank you very thank much. Thank you very much for your time. I look forward to talking again. We hope you enjoyed Human's conversation today, and we invite you to share this episode with someone who might enjoy it as well. Take a screenshot on your phone, text it to them, and tell them to check out businessofluxurypodcast.com. Also, we encourage you to rate and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening to The Business of Luxury.